Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions. Uh, we're here with Lux the Cat, who's almost a cat. He's a... Uh, He's still a kitten, though. He's working on it. And uh, the ever-amazing Lindsay Parker, who is the managing editor of Yahoo Music and many other things. Uh, I'll rattle them off quickly. Uh, you have been on CNN, MTV, USA today, Reuters, and you host your own uh, vlog, which would be like a blog with a video. Yeah, it's kind of like this, but is with Which you get to see. You get to see it. All about the voice. Uh, it's called The Day After, mm-hmm. which you sort of recap. That's a big thing now. Everybody's Everything's got to be recapped, even drama shows on TV. You, you sit down and the cast explains how it all you know, came about and how it affected them, and it's very serious. Yeah, mine's not so serious, but it, it's with me and a, a kind of snarky guy who was on The Voice season nine and came in fourth place, and now we're almost into The Voice season 12. So, yeah, we just dish about the show and stuff. But I've always had a real soft spot for all those cheesy um, performance shows. I'm still kind of sad about the fact that American Idol isn't on anymore. This is exactly but the time of year. But you did that through its whole run, right? I watched it from... Episode two of season one, I actually remember my mother calling me and telling me, did you see American Idol last night? And me saying, saying no, what's that? And um, sh- her telling me that like I had to check it out. So I watched American Idol from pretty much the beginning. It was around season five, the Taylor Hicks season, when, um, when I started writing about it. So and when did that come out? Just to kind of, for me to remember. When did American Idol start? Yeah. American Idol started in 2002, and actually it's kind of interesting because it started not that long after 9-11, and a lot of people have theorized that the reason that show was such a success was the timing. Much how a lot of people have said the reason the Beatles were successful. Because of the Kennedy. Event. Yeah, the same, in a similar thing, people, the country was hurting, they were sad, they wanted something to rally around, some feel-good escapist yeah. entertainment, and here came this show about, like, young kids from the Midwest and the South trying to achieve their dreams, and for a long time on American Idol, it actually did that. Like, Kelly Clarkson and people like that would win and actually become successful pop stars. It's a, you know, the American dream. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people think it was because it kind of coincided with the aftermath of 9-11. So it was on from 2002 to 2016, which is not a bad run for a TV show. No, it's pretty, especially for something that's, you know, basically a reality show, a talent show. Yeah, and it's a really unhip thing. It's like an aggressively unhip thing, and I know that. And people always seem to be... um, confused that I would like it so much. But I really would get um, wrapped up in these kids' stories and actually in um, the fact that there's a lot of talent out there. I may not always be the kind of music that you or I would want to listen to, but at one point I started to go, wow, there's like a real a lot of really talented people here. And it actually in a weird way made me appreciate singing in a way that I never had before because if you look at all my favorite artists like, you know, the Cure or the Psychedelic Furs or Leonard Cohen or Johnny Thunders or whatever, like Sex Pistols. These are not people who are, you know, technically great singers. Like most of the, I was not a fan of people like Celine Dion or Mariah Carey, but, you know, covering American Idol and now The Voice and some other shows like that made me develop an appreciation I never had for the fact that, like, you know, some people are really born with a gift to sing. And, you know, that's a skill that, I'll never have, so I got to admire that. So, I lead a little dual life. I'm a bit of an indie rock chick, but then I like I have a real fondness for like 
cheesy entertainment, I guess. Uh, but you you mentioned like all the rocker guys you you like that mm-hmm. you know would never be in this sort oh, of. Oh, never! They wouldn't get past the audition room if they try out. And I remember, uh, I believe it was Slash was on something, and he was talking about how he, he felt these shows were just sort of like a a way to bypass how people like him became successful because uh, you know in a normal in normal life you couldn't do that you couldn't just go yeah but the, win a contest and get a record deal but the business model of how well you could because there was star search back in the day but oh, that's true uh, and speaking and the, of ed mcmahon and there were a lot of people britney spears won star search christine aguilera justin timberlake a lot of people like star search actually yielded more stars than american idol or anything else but to slash's point um I don't know if the business model or the you know the process that bands like Guns N' Roses came up through exists now. Like the idea that you know you form and you play clubs and you pay your dues and then you eventually get A um, and R people to discover you and then you build. You know, in the case of Guns N' Roses, it took about a year before um, Appetite for Destruction took off. You know, it took like a second single. Like they were not big right out of the gate. No. Uh, I don't know if that really works anymore. I mean, do bands break that way anymore? Um, and as far as how bands do break, it's like, you know, anything that makes people get excited about music in in a day and age where it's really hard to get anyone to buy music or stream music or download music is fine with me. So if it's uh, a placement on a TV show or a commercial, if it's American Idol or The Voice, if it's Glee back when that show used to be on, if it was Guitar Hero or Rock Band back when those games are popular i'm all for it whatever makes people get into music we should not that's a good point we should not poo poo that because it's really hard to get people to get into music these days and well so you're in you're in the driver's seat over at yahoo watching everything that goes on so you've kind of watched i mean how long you've been there now it's it's been Uh, uh, i've been at yahoo since 2001 that's crazy right right long time but uh you were at launch be- before, before that, that. Yeah. so it's all kind of like one continual thing, right? Yeah, launch got bought in two thousand one by by Yahoo. I'm dating myself. I started at launch in like ninety seven. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, that seems about right. And uh, actually, I was writing for you then, yeah. and it was a nice little uh, extra check. I mean, <laughs> for a while, there was a, a lot of people like me that were writing for magazines and stuff. Uh, had a whole little boom time when all yeah. these. Uh, you know, startups in the tech world started like, you know, having blogs and little magazines online and all this. People were just throwing money at yeah, there was until like they all realized st- that there really wasn't, yeah. you know. There was like All Star Mag and yeah. remember all those? It was yeah. a gold rush almost. It was. World. I remember I used to like ask writers to do things and they would tell me they had too much work and could, I would get turned down by writers saying, no, I don't have time to do that for you. That does, you know, it's kind of, it, it was a great time and it was, you know, I don't have that much print experience. My, um, I started off doing zines, and I also started off like freelance writing for print. But the majority of my career has always been um, in the internet, and it kind of started at the at that time when the internet was exploding. I mean, I remember when I took the job at launch, people were like, "What is?" I sound so old, but it was like, "What's the internet?" Like, what? It was '97, right? So, I mean, my parents were like, "It's funny now." They were saying, "Wouldn't you be better off? Wouldn't it be more stable for you to work for a print magazine?" Ha ha. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I could understand why they thought that at the time. It was the the new frontier. I mean, in a way, I feel like a little bit of a pioneer. Or like my old boss, Dave DiMartino, definitely was. Because he was the employee number one at launch before I was even there. But and he comes from a print background, as you know. All the way back to Cream magazine. I know, right? It, that I'm, you know, really grateful if he listens to this day, I'm very grateful that uh, you know, I got to sort of apprentice or whatever. He was a mentor to me. It was someone who had who was from that era, you know, and very few people 
transition from being in like what a lot of people consider to be the golden age of music journalism to being in the internet age of music journalism. Very few people successfully make that transition. But you came out of the zine thing, like you said, which mm -hmm. carried on a lot of that spirit of Absolutely. like sort of the earlier uh, and more uh, against the grain rock magazines, yeah. of which Cream would be the biggest example. I, I miss that zine era, although I do see with some of the music blogs that um, younger people... Um, are doing now on their own or some of the more independent music blogs, I see a similar spirit, you know, a voice and, and just sort of that excitement and, the, and that casual tone. Um, for a while, I did have to sort of retrain myself from having been a zine writer to sort of um, tone down that casual tone and sound more quote unquote, like, you know, journalistic or professional. And then professional. it sort of, and then it sort of turned around again. And then like that more casual tone became more of what people expect from the internet. And by casual, I don't mean like, bad writing or you know full of typos or grammatical mistakes i just mean like not sounding like you're writing like a thesis for emp sure. no offense to people who like emp but you know like that dense very intellectual writing doesn't always work well on the web yeah or an or in a zine because you're, you're no. that's really um it's fan to fan I loved the zine era. I'm happy. I still have copies of my zine. It was called Pork Chops and Applesauce. Yeah. I loved doing it. it. You know, there was nothing like, you know, I'm going to sound like the, the, the old person saying they used to walk to, in the snow uphill both ways to school. But, that, that you know, sitting on the floor of your apartment, stapling your zine together, well, Xerox I, ink on your hands, nothing like that. I was going to say, I mean, I think in a way, I mean, you were talking about people, how it's similar to doing blogs nowadays, but... There's something about the whole actually physically putting the thing together, and yeah. it's a it's an item that people carry in their hand that I think take us it a little bit up up another notch. Well, I loved the personal touches. I remember um, I gave my zine away for free. I didn't sell it. Um, so after I I would I would make maybe somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred copies. There was always a little more with each run because I did sell advertising, and the advertising almost at the last issue I ever did, I actually broke even. So that was a, that was a success to me, because I lost money on all the other issues. But I would have you know my boxes of zines that I would drive to different record stores, coffee houses, clubs, whatever in L.A. And I remember I'd go to Jabberjaw. If people who were in L.A. in the '90s and early 2000s might remember Jabberjaw, there's a book, a really great book about it, called um, "It All Dies Anyway," which people should check out. And I have a little blurb in there. But anyway, I remember I would go up there and like the people who worked at Jabberjaw, when I came up with my box of allotted zines for them, would be all excited. They'd be like, oh, your new issue's out. And like, you know, the people behind the counter were reading them. And sometimes I'd go out in the patio of Jabberjaw. I'd see like all these kids like sitting around reading, you know, in front of me. They didn't know I was, it was mine. No, that's really super and, cool. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. Now, sometimes when you write for the internet, you sort of, um, I mean, you might see, obviously you see the statistics, you see the clicks. Uh, but it doesn't have that personal touch. There are a lot of times when you just publish it and it kind of feels like you're just throwing it out into the void, even though you know that somewhere out there someone's reading it. That personal touch isn't really there. Except uh, for the comment section, I guess. Yeah, and then, so, one thing I hadn't realized is that, and, and I obviously there's time off in between this, but, you know, also on the printed page, you've, you've written a book. I which have, I well, did not know. It's an e-book, but it's a book. It's a book. It's a book. It has a long, long title. It is called, let me, I, let me see if I can even remember the name of my own book. I right? have it written down if you don't have it. Uh, Careless Memories of Strange Behavior, My Notorious Life as a Duran Duran Fan. It's a, it's a good title. Yeah, it it's is. Um, that was for uh, a sadly now defunct series called uh, by Rhino. It was called Single Notes. They were these shorter books, you know, like... 
15,000 word books. They're, they're meant to sort of be read, you know, like maybe if you're a uh, waiting for your plane or whatever like they're called quick reads um frank meyer our good friend frank meyer wrote one i believe his was on the ramones or van halen it was one of the two so they decided to do these ebooks and the idea was it was uh they, they were kind of personal they were written by fans about you know i know there was a beastie boys one you know but sort of you know growing up with a band how what that band meant to you and your sort of personal fandom with it so when they came to me they basically said do you have a band like that close to your heart that like kind of changed your life like the band that changed your life basically and i said yeah i've got two i've got duran duran or the cure and they wanted duran duran which is uh i was happy to write about so the book is just about how i was a big old dork basically duran duran were my gateway band um they were my one direction they were my new kids on the block they were my justin bieber hansen whatever osmonds whatever someone has as their teen idol band Duran Duran were mine, and um, I'm kind of grateful for that, because as disparaged as Duran Duran can be, um, a lot of these other teen idols that I've mentioned are kind of like, um, you know, like manufactured Svengali boy bands, and Duran Duran were like a real band. They were uh, a band that had that old school business model, that they were a band that like formed through Melody Maker or through ads, practiced, became big in Birmingham, had a label bidding war, did tours with other bands, didn't really get big till their second album, played all their own instruments, wrote all their own songs, were influenced by some really cool people like Roxy Music and Japan and the Sex Pistols and Chic and Bowie and all that. And they were a gateway band for me as I used to voraciously read anything about them, any interview they did. I was very into music, reading music magazines at a young age, which is probably why I wanted to go into what I was doing. And anything they said they liked, like I'd read something and John Taylor would say in his interview that he really liked the album The Idiot by Iggy Pop. And here I am, you know, 12 years old. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go listen to that now because John Taylor said he liked it. Or they said they love Roxy Music or they said they really loved Kraftwerk. You know, they were like cool post-punk dudes. I mean, I have to say, uh, you, no, I don't really. really think of Duran Duran as like a fluff band. I mean, I've got I'm some I'm glad of you say that because a lot of people do. Well, I mean, it was pop. I mean, and, and they're trying to sell records, but they were really good. And yeah. Some of the, and, you know, they were named after a Barbarella character. Uh -huh. That's pretty cool, yeah. too. And John Taylor's a kick-ass bass player. Amazing sure. bass player. I talked to yeah. Steve Jones about that recently because they were in that band, um, The Neurotic Outsiders, together, if you remember oh, that. Oh, yes. I forgot he was in that. And they, he talked about what a good bass player John was. And um, I do think at this point now people have realized that. But at the time, they were very hated by music critics. It's amazing I became one because I used to spend a lot of time writing to music critics, telling them how much they sucked for hating my favorite band. But to go back to what I was saying is I think every everyone, girl or boy, has a gateway band, that first band that really ignites their excitement for music. And Duran Duran wasn't my first, but they were my first really big one because before that I remember liking the Beatles and the Monkees and stuff, but I knew they were older bands that weren't around you anymore. You need something for you. They weren't you, contemporary. Yeah, you don't want something that's already been through the mill. And Duran Duran were that for me, and you know, that was sort of based on a lot of things, just the timing of my age and, and MTV coming around and stuff. If I had been a few years younger or older, it could have been New Kids on the Block or it could have been the Backstreet Boys or it could have been, you know, something not as good. And maybe that would have ignited my fire just as much, but I'm grateful that the era I came up when my teen idols were people like, you know, ABC and Adam Ant and Duran Duran and even Wham and stuff, like people who wrote their own music and were really good musicians and had really good songs, even if their videos were fluffy or they were like, you know, like George Michael even, like, you know, people like used to make fun of Wham, but now that he's gone, we all realize like, 
how phenomenally talented he was. So I'm happy I grew up in the era I did. And so the book, the Duran Duran book I wrote, and I also wrote a, um, an article for uh, a website called Music Aficionado about that sort of defending. Oh, you know, I Duran just sort Duran. of discovered that. That's it's a good a, site. It's pretty interesting. I, I feel like it doesn't cover too much of anything happening now. It's very, no. it's very much like, did you miss this? Yeah. Like I just read a really good article there on uh, Laura Nero, which I yeah. thought was really interesting. And they just did one on Chris Hillman too. Yeah, I saw that. But yeah, I just saw more. It's definitely for an older audience. It's like maybe a more mojo style audience. Kind of. They yeah. had me write something about. Uh, I think the title of the article was There is Something You Should Know. Duran Duran were always great. And it just was like, I'm like, why are we even still having this argument? Are we real still? But I don't know. I think it's, that might have been also my first exposure at a quite young age to just the inherent sexism in music fandom that um, it's something I've wrestled with my whole life, that if a band has a large female fan base, they kind of get discredited. And that happened in the metal world too. Like Def Leppard. Yeah, I was just about to say Def Leppard. Well... They had so many good songs, but they would get put down because they had a female fan base. I heard Duran Duran, so I'm crashing. Hello. And well, I'm wearing my, my most Duran Duran hat I could find. You are wearing a fedora hat as we speak. Yeah. But, but it's bent wrong. It's like, it's, I know. it goes up like a cowboy hat. I gotta move the hat. kitten to join in. I interviewed John Taylor once and asked him where his fedora hat was, and he does not know. Okay. How does he not know where that is? Should be we the just Smith- buy another Two one. things about John Taylor. One, the loudest bass I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I'm a metalhead uh-huh. who's been kicked in the face by the singer from Napalm Death. Was John Taylor's solar band <laughs> at the Roxy. I mean, literally, I like, it was the loudest bass I've ever heard. And then What he, was the music like? I don't know. Because I was, like, heavy. seriously, like... I probably should be checking with my primary care physician <laughs> if I can handle this level of volume. As too funny. Um, and then the second time was um, I saw him. He was at a show at the Knitting Factory as a guest at the Knitting Factory in Hollywood, and he was lost. And I gotta help him. And I'm like, oh, would you? What like- was the show? I don't, I don't even that. remember. I'm just like, would you like me to take you to VIP? And he's like, <laughs> yes. And I was just like. Oh my God! <laughs> he's a he's a real I, you know I, my paths have crossed with him many times. I've interviewed him and other members of Duran Duran many times. It's it's one of those moments where you do have those moments where you're like, oh my God! If my 12 year old, 13 year old self had ever known that I'd yeah. be in this position, I would have died. But uh, he's really nice and down to earth. And it's like, how does he just not walk around being aware that he's John Taylor, like this guy who, you know. Um, Ignited so many fantasies for so many I think many he knows. Girls. I think he knows. No, he knows, well. but he hasn't seemed to let it like get to him. Like well, he, he's very down to earth. Yeah, no, and, and he's very a, chill, he's, and he's like a badass musician. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I've never in my life heard such loud bass. He's ever. a great bass player, and There's... I'm married to a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never heard such loud bass. I was just like... If you want more, there's a few isolated, uh, re- mostly from the Rio album, isolated bass lines of his on YouTube, and they are pretty kick-ass. I mean, first of all, I admire you on so many levels, but oh, one of you. them is because you ended up on 90210. And I found out about that because of you. Do you remember <laughs> this story? Yes. So, I'll okay, I'll backtrack. So basically, my dream had been to be on Rock and Roll Jeopardy because I used to, Rock and Roll Jeopardy is by the same people who do the regular Jeopardy and it was on VH1. And I'd always play it along at home and basically win. And I was like, I could go on this and I could win money. And I auditioned. And when I auditioned, I knew I was going to get on. I just knew. I like went, I dressed like a total freak. <laughs> 
I like wore like eight scarves and like bell bottom pants and I don't know. I just like and there was a part on the back where you had to write anecdotes about yourself, like the kind of thing the host would be like, So we're gonna talk to Lindsay and so Lindsay, I heard you once, blah 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 and I like wrote down all these like crazy anecdotes about my life. I'm like, I know I'm getting on. So I got on and I almost won. But and and I was in the lead for much of it, and I got to say, "What are fat bottom girls on TV?" <laughs> I got I'm, to I'm say, "I'm sorry, I'm doing my Ed McMahon great. right now." <laughs> I got to say, "Who are the Flying Burrito Brothers?" I got all the good questions. Right. Oh my God, Flying but Burrito Brothers! But it was brothers. a very competitive episode. I will give it up to the two guys that I was competing with because they were not in the music business; they were just dorky guys who like music and they gave me a run for my money um it was very close i lost in double jeopardy actually i want to see if you guys know the question because uh it has haunted me for the rest of my days so you know what double jeopardy is it's the one where you at the end you write in the answer on the screen and and that's you kind of make your bet and i had to bet pretty much everything i had all the points i had because it was so close that was really the only hope i had of winning but i didn't get the question right so i lost but the question was yep ready bruce the the (laughs) category was songs that sell meaning songs that have been used in ads and the question was this wilson pickett song was used in a 1999 ford radio commercial Mustang Sally? Ah, you got it right. (laughs) Oh, no, I didn't. I was supposed to say, what is Mustang Sally? You actually would have been disqualified for just saying Mustang Sally, so now I feel better. But um, I blanked out and I wrote, like, in the midnight hour because it was the only Wilson Pickett song you'd think. In retrospect, yeah, of course it's Mustang Sally. You know why I didn't think of Mustang Sally, Bruce? Because to me, perhaps I'm showing my age, that's a commitment song. That's from the movie The Commitments. That's that's a commitment song. We went to Memphis uh, on vacation, and literally every time you walk into a bar, the, a band is playing Mustang. Yeah, like, but I see, mean, like, like literally, you walk in a bar yeah, and you're like, but "Hey, see, Mustang Sally." But see, to your point, it's been covered and done by so many people. I no longer identify it with Wilson Pickett. <laughs> okay. I just think of it as like a standard that like everybody does, you know. So anyway, um, I didn't get it right. So that was sad. But then a year later. Bruce, or I think it was you, Bruce, who emailed me and was like, hey, you are I, now 2-0. I think it was me. At, no, because you had taped it or something. I on Back it. when we still taped things on VHS. And I was like, what are you talking about? And apparently, and I have this now on tape, they had used the scene of me correctly answering the question about where American Bandstand is from. What is Philadelphia? The question is, like, where did uh, American Bandstand um, initially get filmed? And side note to my side note, the reason I know that is because my mom was on American Bandstand when she was 14 and loved to tell the story about how when she was 14, she begged her parents to let, she lived in Boston at the time, to take a train to Philadelphia with her friend to go on American Bandstand and because they had relatives in Philadelphia that would pick them up at the train station and like t- let them stay with them and supervise them, her parents said yes. So my mom used to love to tell this story about how she went to Philadelphia when she was 14 beyond Bandstand. So when I'm on Jeopardy and they say, where was American Bandstand first filmed? I'm like, what is Philadelphia? So anyway, that's the snippet they end up using. So I now to an O. If you watch when um, Steve Sanders and and, um, Dylan are watching TV, it's the episode where Dylan sees his dad, who he thought was dead, but who was really (laughs) in the witness relocation program. And he sees his dad on some, like, weird news thing, and that's how he finds out his dad's still alive. They're watching Jeopardy, and Steve Sanders and Dylan are playing along at home, and um, Steve is all like, it's Cleveland, it's Cleveland. And and Uh Dylan's like, no, no, it's Philadelphia. And they're having a little, like, argument about who's right and then they cut to my face going what is philadelphia 
And I'm like, what? And so you, Bruce, were like, hey, congrats on being on now 2-0. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because Elsa hadn't been home that night. She had taped the show, and you gave me the tape. I still have it. <laughs> and now I actually found it online, and I, like, totally Instagrammed the video of me saying it. And Wait, so it's that, on, like, a YouTube clip, the yeah. whole show? Um, I think just, like, you know, part people, like, do that. People take, like, you know, shows and put them up. I think it's on Vimeo or Daily Motion. Oh, my God. But I found it and put it up on my Instagram. And so that sort of softened the blow of losing. And, of course, I immediately called the people at Jeopardy to see if I could get, like, some royalties out of that. <laughs> but no, because... You know, yeah, you how saw, does that work? Because it was owned by... You signed something basically saying they are allowed to use the show and you on it, your likeness on the show to promote the show and having them... It's promotion for Rock and Roll Jeopardy to have it be on 90210. So no, I didn't get Diddly Squat. But I can say I was on 90210 in a pivotal scene. Yeah. Very and, important and, and scene. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I watch 90210 when it's on the pop-like station. Oh, it's great. I love it. Yeah, and the I Color like, Me Bad episode? Whenever you come up, I'm like... That's my girl. And do I come I'm up like, often? Do they show my episode often? Well, like every three years or something. Amazing. That's <laughs> often still. enough. Yeah, they got a cycle. But I just, I just love you that know, we... I love... It's so cool. ...that we live in this world where you end up on 90210... So randomly. ...through various cycles. Completely. And it's like fantastic. I actually just interviewed um, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips because, you know, they just put a record oh, out. Oh, yeah, and they were on 90210. I talked to him at length about when they were on 90210 because he was saying, you know... When they had their kind of brief brush with um, uh, the pop or the alternative rock mainstream when She Don't Use Jelly was like their one big hit, um, they basically just embraced it and just did all the cheesy stuff they were offered, like all the late night talk shows, whatever they were offered. And one of them was they performed at the Peach Pit. And so did, speaking of Lux, Name Your Cat, the Cramps. That's right, the Cramps were the cramps on it. The Cramps were on it too, yeah. Lux, our, our cat here. Before I there was, was strange, it's currently strange, attacking your feet. Strange Love. It was a Halloween right. episode, I remember yes. that. Yeah, Before there was the bait shop on um, the OC, there was the Peach Pit. I'll always remember um, the Flaming Lips episode because Steve said, I'll always remember the quote, and I actually recited this back to Wayne Coyne. He was like, see who writes dialogue like that? That's terrible. It was Steve Sanders saying, I'm not much of a fan of alternative music, but Flaming Lips rocked the house. Damn. Uh, pretty good it. dialogue. I don't know. I've actually, I've, I've met um, Ian Ziering uh, a few times doing oh. charity events. Yeah, he does a lot of charity stuff, actually. And he is, like, actually the nicest guy in the world. I mean, I'm He's happy. not a fan of alternative music before. No, but he's, the, he's absolutely the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Um, he was good on Dancing with the Stars, too. He was good he on Sharknado. Did, he was, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Sharknado. Um, so I do have to ask, though. So, okay, so I was a huge fan of Freddie Mercury. Yeah, who wasn't? Yeah. Idiots. And, like, I mean, I, I remember the day he died, and mm -hmm. I was, like, leaving, a, like, college class and, like, going through a Taco Bell drive-thru and, like, just, like, finding out he died. And my boyfriend was still in bed, and I crawled back into bed, and I was just, like, bawling. Like, oh, wow. just, like, devastated. Like, how can Freddie Mercury be dead? And uh, kind of similar to my husband did to me when uh, David Bowie died. Um, but I know that your work with American Idol, you've met American, um, you've met Adam Lambert, yeah, and many he's times. and he's doing now a whole tour. Not now. He's been. He. Um, I, I can tell you. I can, yeah, I can tell you. Yeah, he's been doing a tour with them. I'll tell you the whole 
trajectory of how it happened. It's a whole timeline. So um, Adam Lambert, uh, we were talking about American Idol earlier before you came in, and you know he Adam Lambert's my favorite person to ever be on the show. I think which that was another thing I want to ask elevated because I mean I mean my thing with Kelly Clarkson's my idol. She's great. She's great in every way, and I I honestly don't think the show probably would have even been able to have the track record it did as actually being kind of looked at as some sort of credible idol maker if it hadn't they got lucky right out of the gate their first person they got was someone who was great but adam's always been my favorite and what happened was um he was season eight um so it's actually kind of crazy that was two he was on the show in 2009 it's kind of crazy you realize he's been it was he just turned 35 yesterday i'm i follow him at instagram. 35 he just turned 35 follow him at instagram and i saw him like putting up stuff from his birthday party um but anyway he was like 27 when he was on the show which was on the later end of the the later yes, end it is. um american idol is 15 to 20 to 29 or 20 you have to be 28 at the time you audition so you're still by the time like the show is underway you're still 29 you're under 30 basically but there be guys over 30 on that no no, no, I don't. Yeah, the, well, I'm Taylor sure, Hicks I'm was sure, under I'm thirty. Sure the guy and hair. versus girl age difference is a little. Different. No, American Idol, you have to be twenty nine or younger. The Voice, you don't. Voice has no um, age cap, but Idol. I mean, there might have been some people who looked older, but anyway, going back to um, Lambert. Um, so on the finale of his season, he performed with um, Queen, and uh, they loved him understandably he's like he can hit the notes he's theatrical and um you know apparently they at that time approached him about singing with them and he turned it down because he want you know he wanted to do his own thing he was getting his own record deal he wanted to do his own thing uh, and he's had you know a certain level of success i think i personally feel he should have have had way more success as a solo artist as he's done he's had success that a lot of artists would kill for he's been nominated for grammy he's had a number one album but you know he's not quite you know he's not at that level of justin timberlake or the weekend or one of these other you know pop stars that sells millions of records but he's had a good career but it's not a performance so maybe it's writing he's he, I don't think he wrote on his first record, but he he does right now. I know he has a publishing deal of some kind because I remember there was news that he'd signed one. So he does write or co-write. Uh, he's a really talented dude. But like in 2000, and, um, I'm going to say 2011, so about two years after he'd been on Idol, 2011 or 2012, um, there was a Freddie Mercury tribute at, tribute at the EMAs, the MTV Europe Awards, the VMAs, but in, Engl- in Europe. And... Um, Queen were getting some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award, and they didn't announce it, but as a surprise, Adam sang with them at that. And he's he wasn't known in Europe. You know, they don't show American Idol in Europe on regular network TV, so no one really knew who he was, and they were like, who's this guy? He's great. And that's what opened it up where he started to tour with them. And he toured with them for the first time, I think, in, I'm going to say 2013. And I actually flew, I'm such a dork, I flew to London just to see this. Oh, babe, darling, if I ever got a chance to meet Brian May, I I would fall to my knees and I would cry like a baby and I would just hold his ankles because I think (laughs) Brian May is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Oh, yeah. And he's an astrophysicist, like my brother. And he's an animal rights activist, Yeah, but I know if I ever had uh, the opportunity to meet Brian May, I I, I, I totally would have lost it. There's no way I could... Uh, handled that at all. So I went to... I, at that time, I wasn't sure that they would do anything in America, and I wanted to go. So I went and saw them in London. I bought... They were playing a three-night residency. I saw two of the nights. Uh, it was at the... Uh, 
Hammersmith Apollo, I believe. I might have changed the name of what that venue is. but And it was great. And then I've seen them a bunch of times in America. I saw them. Their American debut is at the iHeartRadio Festival in Vegas. And then they did um, an iHeartRadio show at that like weird theater in Burbank. And then I saw them at um, the Forum. And now they're coming back to the Bowl. Um, June 26th, I believe. So it's like he's got this great... So- he's made so much money off of it. When they, the, You know how Forbes does every year like a um, list of the top whatever, this, top that. Last year, in conjunction with American Idol ending, they did a thing of the top um, the top earning American Idol contestants for the year. And, Mer- and Adam Lambert was number one. He made like $10 million in 2015. Because of Queen? Mostly because of Queen. It wouldn't be... Uh, he has other things. You know, he was like a... He was a judge on the X Factor Australia. He was on the Rocky Horror Picture Show on Fox. He's very savvy. He's always got irons in the fire. But Queen is a good... I don't think he's doing it just for the money. I think he's doing it because he enjoys it and he's great at it. But, you know, it's a good check, you know. Um, and it's really interesting because... Um, and I'm friends with this guy, Mikhail Wood, but um, he he uh, reviewed the show at the Forum that Queen did with Lambert, um, I'm going to say not last summer, but the summer before. And he, he criticized it. He, he didn't give it a good review. And what he said was he thought that Queen were doing just too much of a retread of the old stuff and they should have done new material without him and that they should have done reimagined the songs in a modern way. And I'm like, that's absolutely not what anyone buys tickets to a Queen show at the Forum wants to see. If I mean, there already were probably doubters who were like, oh, here's some, you know, if they didn't see him on American Idol or they don't like that show, who would have been like, okay, who's this dude stepping into arguably the, the toughest role you could step into? Absolutely. So if he came in and was like, I'm going to change up all the songs and make them sound like alternative rock or I'm going to make mm-hmm. them sound disco or whatever he wanted would maybe do, people would hate that. No one wants to go see Queen do modern versions of We Will Rock You and, and Somebody to Love. They want to hear him faithful to the original, which I think Adam does. He's not Freddie Mercury. No one is. But what band does that anyway? What band reinvents yeah. their own he... music? It's already theirs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess because he was saying like, oh, Queen are going to... I mean, I understood his point. It's like, you know... And Queen were pretty forward-looking at the time. I mean, they were ahead of the, yeah, uh, they of were. the curve by I guess there's, pretty substantial amount. I understand his point of the idea of like, okay, it's been a very long time since Freddie Mercury's been gone. I think it's been about 25 years. Incredibly. And they're still sort of... You know, harking back to past glories, like, isn't it time for them if they're going to still continue to be a band as queen to, like, just move forward and do new music and do something new and not just rehash the old material? And maybe there's some validity to that. And I would actually love to see them record without them. But people who are buying expensive tickets to see Queen at the Forum want to hear the hits and they want to hear them close to how they remember them. And I think... Adam has done a great job of that. He's very theatrical. He's one of the few male singer, rock singers out there who can really hit those notes. He's young. He's sexy. He's, you know, good-looking guy. He's very sexy. Good-looking guy. You're you're exactly right. He's sexy. He hits the notes. Yep. I mean... Theatrical. He's good. He comes from a theater background. He comes from a musical theater background. It doesn't matter if he wrote it or not. It's like he nails it on so many levels. Well, I liked him from the beginning because it's interesting because I've seen how people have voted for American Idol over the years and people tend to vote for someone they relate to which is often given the viewership of Idol it's like you know, country singers it's people from the south it's whatever. When Adam came on he was like a club kid from L.A. 
Like yeah. MySpace was still around then. His MySpace, his personal MySpace, was still up at the time, and it was all pictures of him at places like Club Makeup and stuff like. Drugs. Oh my God, Club, Club Makeup! makeup. He, used to, he used to go. I sat on the mm-hmm. side of the mm-hmm. stage at Club Makeup, seeing Bill Ward awesome. from Black Sabbath. That's awesome. Playing, um, still loving you with. Oh my God. It was the most incredible thing. I cried, and then there was <laughs> a guy. Sounds like love me. Thank you. I was so emotional. I cried, and then like there was a guy holding his jacket, and I'm like, "Can I touch his jacket?" That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I there's just, a picture of her. We'll show you uh, yeah. out in the uh, living room, and her. It's like Alice Cooper makeup. No, I just, I was literally, down. I was like, I've never cried so hard in my life as That's seeing, as being five feet away from seeing Bill Ward. But play see, drums. that was the world that Adam Lambert came from. He was a club yeah, kid. He went to club go. makeup. Totally there was a show that used to go on great. at the Fonda Theater called um, the Zodiac Show. That was yeah. like he was in that so when i saw him on idol i was like that was me going like oh there's someone idol that i relate to he lives in hollywood he goes to the clubs he dresses glam rock style he is a you know he's like a rock la hollywood I, guy you know what so i immediately kind of gra- so, even got on, really. so i gravitated towards him right away so i looked I, at him and i was like this is my boy next door because this is like i live in la i live in hollywood we love music. my boy next door is someone who's more likely to be the adam lambert type than the scotty mccreary or you know clay aiken type and um, so I immediately gravitated towards him. I'm, I'm really, really happy to see the success he's had. The fact that he, you know, fronts one of the biggest rock bands of all time and has other irons in the fire. It's like more power to him. He deserves it. He's great. How did uh, how did you end up with sort of being on the beat, I guess we would say, in the, <laughs> the writing world of, you know, doing all this reality TV stuff as the music editor? Um, was, was that your thought? Yeah. It's kind of leading the, the I path? mean, it was kind of, def- uh, you know, we... Um, wanted to start individual columns um, at Yahoo Music where I was at. You know, my my boss at the time, Dave, basically said if you guys want to have like your own blog to have on the side, it wasn't supposed to be a huge part of my job, you know, go right ahead. And at that time, I guess it was 2007, 2006, I basically said, you know, like at that time, American Idol was huge. And I'm like, um, you know, we need to have someone covering the show, like, regularly about recapping the show and also sort of, I don't know if you remember, but back then that show could really move the needle with, like, what was being downloaded, like, on iTunes and stuff. And um, back in Season 7 of American Idol, which was 2008, um, a guy who eventually came in fourth place named Jason Castro, he covered Hallelujah um, by Leonard Cohen, obviously. But uh, after he did it, Simon Cowell said that his favorite song of all time was the Jeff Buckley version of that song. And the next day on iTunes, the Jeff Buckley version of that song was number one, and the Leonard Cohen version of that song was in the top ten. And that was the first time people realized, like, wow, this show, American Idol, actually makes people, like, get interested in older music. And I was seeing that a lot. I was seeing, like, someone would cover, like... Um, you know, some Dionne Warwick song and then on iTunes you'd see like that song had a spike and I was like, you know, this is a show that's moving the needle for music, not just the music, the people that are on the show, but for older music. So anyway, I basically said, you know, I'm obsessed with the show in like a super dorky way, so I'll write about it and my boss was like, fine. And then it like really kind of snowballed because then other shows were coming up like The Voice and uh, which I still write about and um, X Factor, which didn't really totally take off, but was a thing for a minute and yeah so it just sort of became a thing and um honestly i will say i've been writing about music for a really long time 
And I've never seen anything like the phenomena of that, like the community that was around that show. That's why I was so sad when it ended. Like when I think about how many friends and contacts I made between people who worked on the show, other writers, other bloggers, some of whom I met on Twitter, contestants. I'm friends with a lot of contestants from that show and from The Voice, actually. Um, people who worked for Fox, people who worked for Fremantle, people who worked for 19 Entertainment. Um so many roads led back to that show. It's like, and the fans, I become friends with fans who just like regularly with other writers, other, I have, I would say I have like at least 10 people I consider good friends that I met through American Idol. There was, I've never, it was a weird community. Uh, it started, it started, you know, dissipate a little bit as the show went on. Everything runs its course, but like I've never, and I've never experienced that much feedback for anything I wrote. I'd write all sorts of stuff, interviews with huge stars, never got as much feedback as I did for Amer goddamn American Idol recaps. Why do you for think it finally burned out? Why do you think it finally went off the air? Um, I think it's just a combination of, um, well, first of all, anything. It was on for a long time, but like, um, you know, TV viewing habits changed when that show came on in 2002. People, like, it was one of the last what, what is known in the business as appointment television. You had to were, see it when it was happening. Yeah, even though, of course, people had um, VCRs or then DVRs. Um, I still think for when it first came out and for... It was really a water cooler type of talk. Like, I'd go over to my parents' house and then my dad would be like, can you believe that person got eliminated or who do you think's going to win? It really was a topic in national conversation. It was one of those last shows where people would stop what they're doing, watch it in real time, and then talk about it the next day, argue about it. Um, and then TV viewing habits changed. You know, like, I do actually believe when American Idol started, like, young people were watching the show, but by the end of it, the average age of people watching American Idol was 48, 45, something like that. I didn't know that. Now, why do you, because I thought it because was something that kids really liked. The, in the beginning, but, you know, I don't think, you know what, the, the generation, of the millennials and certainly young people like my niece and nephew who are like between the ages of 10 and 16, they're, they're not watching regular TV. They're not sitting in front of a TV set with a remote control in their hand watching TV. They, they are consuming their media online, whether it's Hulu. I don't even think they watch TV shows. They might watch some Hulu or some Netflix or some, uh, you know, some shows like that. But I think most of what they're watching is like YouTube. And so I think there was that. And then in terms of declining record sales for American Idols, that's just reflective of the entire business of record sales declining you know there was a time when you could like people forget taylor hicks he sold like three hundred fifty thousand copies of his first album in week one right taylor hicks's first album went platinum that was a time when just being on that show was kind of like a guarantee of sales so between the record industry changing and the television viewing habits of america changing it's just like you know it was kind of a model it's kind of hard to sustain and you see it now with the voice it's a very popular show but they those the people on the show don't sell anything the record labels don't even try of the there's been 11 11 winners and I think five of them never even released albums like at all mm -hmm. what's especially ironic is unlike American Idol as much the voice is almost all semi-pros the majority of the people that go on the show are people who've had record deals before I would say of the 11 winners I think six of them are people who are total pros like the first guy who won was a guy who had been signed to Capitol and had two records out. The second guy won. I didn't was, know that. Yeah. Second guy won was Alicia Keys' backup singer. The third person who won had been in Hey Monday, which was a band that like yeah, yeah. you remember them, right? Sure. They were signed to Pete Wentz's label, and the list goes on. There was another person. Well, so who, what's the point? Doesn't that kind of take the point of it away? Well, the reason why, in many ways, The Voice was better than American Idol uh, as television and ended up sort of um, trouncing American Idol and really hurting American Idol as a um, 
as a franchise because pe- most people aren't going to commit to watch two. Besides the fact that our kitten is <laughs> yeah, no, no, don't, don't get off and get, get off track there, Elsa. <laughs> most, <laughs> most I'm doing my Ed McMahon. I'm sorry. Most people are not going to commit to watch two reality shows, so they either decide are they going to follow The Voice or they're going to follow Idol, and Voice ended up winning. But the reason why The Voice was a lot of times a better show was because the people were semi-pros they weren't people that when you threw them onto the stage on tv for the first time that froze up and went oh holy crap like i'm a 15 year old who's never done this before they were people who had sung backup for alicia keys Mm -hmm. judith hill who had been you know michael jackson's backup singer and had you know been in the movie 20 feet from stardom Mm -hmm. and you know people who had had record deals Mm -hmm. people who had had this life and um so That's they were good. good they were point. good. They were polished, and they were good on TV, and they were good on stage. Um, but what I thought was just ironic is here are people like, like for instance, uh, a good friend of mine, Terry McDermott, who came in second he, on season three. He'd been in this band called Drive Blind, who had been like pretty big in the LA scene. Like you know, there was a big bidding war for them. They'd been signed to Geffen, whatever. He knew, you know, they'd been signed to Geffen. There'd been some hype about him. They're like any other band that gets signed. There's hype, then nothing happens, and they get dropped. So it's like if he had won and they'd been like, here's a record deal, he would have been right. like, that's nice. You know, One friend of mine who was on the show, he he was on a duo. There aren't too many duos that go on The Voice. He was one, on, one of the few that has. And they got eliminated before the live shows. They got eliminated during a round called the Knockout Rounds, which is the, the last pre-taped round. So they basically, my point of saying that is they knew when they were going to um, get eliminated. They knew the date that they were going to get eliminated because they had been pre-taped. So they, when they got eliminated and their fans who liked them on Twitter were sad and it was a little bit of a shock. And they were right there with their hand on the button. They were like, hey guys, we, we know you're sad that we got eliminated on The Voice. We're sad too. Here's a link to our Kickstarter. They made $30,000 in a day. Wow. <laughs> they made their record. They put it out. It was good. It was very Everly Brothers-esque. They were like a duo with good harmonies. But you know what? They 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 probably knew. Well, they, they obviously knew they weren't going to win because they got eliminated early on. But it's like they were just like ready to use whatever exposure they got from being on TV. You know? Good, more power to yeah. it. Yeah. One thing I didn't know about, and I wanted to ask you about, in uh, 2012, mm-hmm. you uh, got an on, you were nominated for the Online Journalism Award. I was. I don't which know I don't really know happened. much about. Tell us about it. A lot of writers and It's known as the ONAs or the OJAs. OJAs or ONAs. It's the Online Journalism Awards. It's actually pretty prestigious, and, and this isn't me um, putting myself down or, or undercutting myself. I just, I don't know how I got nominated because I was in the company of like, quote unquote, very serious, like people writing about like... Don't make me kick you. No, but I mean, I got nominated for writing about American Idol, which, you know, in my opinion, isn't going to change the world. It's fluffy stuff. And, it's um, music. It's and people, it was really people, funny. People care about it. Because um, when they showed the nominations, uh, it linked to each writer's sample article, and when you clicked for the one of mine, it was my vlog. It was uh, the day after with special guest Casey Abrams, who had been a guy who'd been on American Idol season ten, and we were talking about American Idol, and we were talking about '80s week on American Idol. So we were like dressed up '80s, like we were wearing like fingerless gloves and like Madonna bows in our hair, and that was what you clicked on for this like <laughs> prestigious award. <laughs> and they were like, and now nominated. Yes! Lindsay Parker wearing a Devo hat, <laughs> talking about American Idol right with a guy who came in who came in six two years ago. I'm like, how did I get nominated for this? But you know what? It was great. I didn't win, um, but I have a plaque that you know, like they say, it's an honor just to get nominated. I have a plaque. Um, yeah, it was it was very cool. Um, I don't. It, it was validating at the time because I just like. Um, 
you know, I don't ever think I'm going to win a Pulitzer or anything like that. You know, I'm writing about stuff that's fluffy and lighthearted sometimes. But, but the quality of the writing doesn't necessarily isn't isn't necessarily dictated by. Uh, you know what the topic is no you're right and i do actually think there is room to um you know write about topics like that aren't the serious the of the wine. my favorite part Skinny this microphone wine. picks up everything go ahead please <laughs> um no just you're right it just because you're not necessarily writing about what's going on politically or climate change or, or whatever you know topics that are uh, serious and you know important to the world like even if you're writing about something as silly as Ariana Grande or American Idol or or just a cool new song like you know there there's that's needed as well and so it was validating to be nominated for that award I didn't get to go I was actually at the iHeart Radio Festival when the ceremony took place so I, I streamed it was it here in town though they change it every year where they have the convention that year it was in San Francisco but they were live streaming it so I was in the press room of iHeart Radio uh, Festival in Vegas um, watching myself lose Oh, <laughs> but like right. I say, yeah, it's great it to be nominated, man. That's a cool thing. Yeah, it's obviously I have it in my bio that I was, or I'm, I have a Wikipedia page somehow. I'm actually on Wikipedia, and it's on my Wikipedia. I uh, actually read that today. That's why I knew. You re- you checked out my Wikipedia. page. Uh, you know, I got to take this somewhat semi seriously. I got. I don't know how I, I got time one. to fill. I felt like I'd really made it once I had a Wikipedia page. I don't have one. Uh, you should, actually. Jesters of Destiny do. You should. You've done but more than me. I mean, definitely books. bands I've, I've been in have them. But, <laughs> but when, I they, when they mention your name, it's not it's a hobby. No, because it doesn't, cause I don't have a page, so it doesn't click to anything. Uh, I feel like that could change. And it, Well, it's funny because we looked into it. Like, Frank, uh, when he changed uh, jobs before he ended up at Fender, uh-huh. he, um, he wanted to get one just so he had more reference points online. And he was going to do it himself and found out you can't. No, you can't. Someone else has to do it. Yeah. So, well, there you yeah. go. I'll, a good job. I'll do yours if you'll do mine. I think I had some crazy fan, Nine. probably an Adam Lambert fan, do it. That's the thing. It's like um, going back to just sort of the explosiveness of the Adam Lambert and Idol fan base and how there was no other community I've ever experienced by that. Like, the Adam Lambert, every reality star on, on American Idol, like, all of them had, like, their little sub fan bases, but none of them were as rabid as... Adams and because I was such an early champion of him early on, I became like to some. They're called Glamberts. Um, I give for you for being that. Yeah, I didn't expect that. I just was like saying. Oh well, no! I good, mean, you supported somebody, and I mean, I work at a teen. I work at a teen to teen suicide hotline, which is more noble and, than and, what and I do. No, it's not more noble. Well, yeah, it is because it's you. You bring a certain level of realization to things, and the fact that he's. He's a champion for the cause. It's just yeah. amazing. And it's like, okay, so maybe he doesn't know about Teen Line, but maybe you can help him learn about Teen Line. Adam does a lot of charity stuff, actually. Yeah, and actually, for the, yeah. Especially and, for, um, you know, and, LGBTQ. And that's the thing. It's like, it's like we do videos and stuff, and, I mean, I basically I work at a Teen to Teen hotline. It's open from 6 to 10 every night in Los Angeles. Uh, go to teenlineonline.org and you can talk to a fellow teen. But, you know, these are good things that, you know, c- kids who are in different situations might appreciate. No, he does a lot of charity work, and you're right. Um, there haven't been, I will say this about The Voice American Idol was a bit muzzled about. Um, having openly gay contestants, uh, although he will claim, and I don't not believe him, that I, he says he wasn't told he couldn't talk about sexuality. He didn't talk about it till after he was off the show. 
The Voice, I will say, has been... They've actually won a GLAAD award. And um, the very first season of The Voice, of the top eight, four of them were gay or bisexual, and three of those people made... No, two of those people made the top four. And they were very open about it, but not in a way where it was like their front page story. Like, hi, I'm gay person. That's all I'm ever going to be talking about is the fact that I'm gay. It was like just more like casual. Like they'd show up to the audition with with their partner, you know, and it would be out there that this guy is showing up with his husband or this woman is showing up with her girlfriend. But then it wouldn't be like, that's all. You know, it wouldn't be like, that's all you know about them is that they're like the token gay person or that's their front right. page. Which, which is why it's I was reluctant to bring that up. Although I'm it's, not, I'm not, it was well done. I'm not reluctant to bring this up. We're going to start a band together, right? I'd like to. You and oh, I. Boy. I feel like it's the time. I think you and I, just tell me what instrument you want me to play. You said you'd play drums. I play drums. Yeah, but I, I just bought her a bass. She's going to get the like bass our now. Friend, my friend Chris said, well, flute, I don't want to go the Jethro Tull route. Then so I play a ton of instruments badly. I feel like you should play drums because drums are harder to okay. um, find. Uh, there's, my a, friend, there's a set right there, so we found a them. Set my fr- right well, you know, drummers, are, you. drummers are hard. To find. Okay, so we my friend Chris said she played bass, and she actually is a pretty good. Uh, she is a good bass player. Yeah, so I'm a I feel shitty musician. A lot I'm of terrible. Things. I'm terrible. I want to see. Well, this sounds like a band we're all okay. going to want to see. <laughs> anyway, you anyway, heard it here we're first. We're starting a band. You have, yes, you heard I've it even, first. I've even thought of you, names. We're starting a band. I've even thought of names. Okay, so you're thinking. Do you want to say names? the name before we? I think Lady Business would be a good name for Lady, Lady Business. Business. All right, with a Z. It could be with a Z. I think right, it needs cheers. a Z. That's Love just, you. That's just my music business professional opinion. To that's that's when what I, I contribute. When to I was the, in uh, um, junior high, my best friend Lisa and I had a band called The Current Events, and we <laughs> and our logo was all like. The word current had like electrical sparks of coming off of it. Maybe Fantastic. And did it have a Z no, at the end? No, I mean, I have. Um, That's why you didn't make it. I have, you um, a, I have a Z. We spelled it with a, 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 a regular drum set and I have a cocktail drum set. So I'm like totally neutral. I think I need to take some voice lessons to learn how to sing better than they yeah, do. Yeah, okay, so I'll bring you already my working cocktail at the, drum you're already working set at the voice. and we'll Get be all good. All right, we are at the end of time. So, uh, no, really, we (laughs) really are. Here comes a kitten. Say goodbye to everyone, Lindsay. Goodbye, everyone. And Elsa. Goodbye, everybody. And, uh, well, Lux isn't going to say anything. All right, we're out of here. Thank you for listening to The Tone Deaf Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Join us in the coming weeks when our guest will be off singer and author Keith Morris. Director of The Love Witch, Anna Biller. Author, journalist, and music historian, Steve Blush. Plus, Buzz Osborne and Terry Genderbender of the new supergroup, Crystal Fairy. 